If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, does country legend Patsy Cline predict her tragic demise? Patsy was telling people she didn't think she was going to live long. Then, Quiet Riot sabotages one of the 80s biggest anthems. I hear Frankie's telling Kevin, listen, don't worry, I'm going to play as bad as I can. And finally, Katy Perry's holy battle with a convict. So now, thanks to Katy Perry, the Pope is involved in this. For as long as private air travel has been an option, musicians have faced tragic consequences. It's such a huge American myth, the beloved, amazing artist at the height of their career going down. Stevie Ray Vaughan, helicopter. Bill Graham, helicopter. Leonard Skinner, plane. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the big bopper. And there's this whole thing about it. Are we cursed? Is this like a thing that comes with it? Perhaps no one understands this musician's curse more than country legend Patsy Cline. Miss Patsy Cline. Mm, cigarette. By 1963, she's become the most popular female country singer ever. But she's cheated death twice already. Does this lead to a premonition? She started to get a bad feeling about something happening. She had her will revised. How was she feeling this? It's very strange. Crazy. Patsy Cline was the first female solo artist inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. That's how important Patsy Cline is to country music. She was unique. What a concept. She didn't sound like anybody else. She had this enormous voice, and she'd actually come by it somewhat by accident. Patsy had a throat infection and a high fever as a teenager. It almost killed her. Uh, her heart stopped beating at a certain point. And it caused her vocal cords to swell up horribly. Patsy Klein had to sing. That was maybe her oxygen. She pursued doing it up against all these odds and near death. Armed with her newfound faith and voice, Patsy Klein pursues her passion. She auditioned for the Grand Old Opry, never heard anything, so she just kept going. She went to a local radio station. She beat on doors until people let her audition, and she finally got some traction. She immediately breaks through in 1957 with her crossover smash hit, Walk In After Midnight. And then nothing. Four years go by. They release a dozen singles and they record something like 25 or 30 tracks, and they cannot replicate the success of Walking After Midnight. Undeterred, Patsy continues working Nashville in search of that follow-up hit. Patsy Klein said, all I gotta do is find the right song. It's gonna happen.
I Fall to Pieces. Comes out in January of 61. She's finally getting that second song that people are starting to notice. They're showing up at shows. They know the words. It's working. And then in June, she gets in a terrible car accident. Another woman tried to pass another car in front of my brother and I and hit us head on. And it broke my hip, dislocated it, and broke my right arm and cut my fa uh, face up a little bit. She's in the hospital for over a month. The lady driving the car dies on impact. Another passenger in the car dies at the hospital. She wasn't supposed to survive, and she did. And perhaps having that near-death thing gave her even more guts to push forward and be fearless. Because you only live once, right? Patsy Klein fully recovers from her physical injuries, but mentally, she's never the same. These brushes with death probably led to her believing that she could die at any time. Patsy was telling people she didn't think she was gonna live long. She started giving her stuff away, which is a bizarre thing to do. She wasn't that old. She's constantly telling people things like, I want you to have something to remember me by. She was very casual about it, which is somebody who's at peace with what might happen. Coming up, Patsy Cline's last words. Dottie West says that Patsy Cline said, oh, don't worry. If it's my time to go, it's my time to go, which is a really strange thing to say before you get on a plane. And later, another female star and her battle with a group of nuns. Katy Perry versus the nuns. Probably one of the strangest journeys of her pop career. By 1963, country singer Patsy Cline has become as big a star as there is in Nashville. Patsy Cline, how are you, Patsy? Nice to see you. She's also twice cheated death, first as a child and later when she survives a horrific car crash. By the age of 30, she's become very much aware of just how fragile life can be. She starts doing strange things. She and her husband go and have a will written up. She starts giving her friends keepsakes. She's giving people gifts from her personal wardrobe, telling them, I want you to have something to remember me by. It might have just been the trauma from the car accident, but travel became a real issue for her psychologically. Dottie West says that Patsy Cline said, oh, don't worry. If it's my time to go, it's my time to go which is a really strange thing to say before you get on a plane. On March 5th, 1963, after playing a show in Kansas City, Patsy, along with singers Cowboy Copas, Hank Shaw Hawkins, and pilot Randy Hughes, board a private plane headed back to Nashville. They will never make it back to Music City. Patsy Cline dies at the age of 30. But was she somehow able to predict her own death? I don't believe you can will a plane to crash, you know, by your own mind. So how did she know? She said she saw God or something when she had her car accident. 
and that this was the thing filling her after that. And the thing that also gave her peace, like if it's gonna end today, it's gonna end today. I don't know if that was foresight or something else, but the thing about Patsy Cline that most people I think don't realize is that her death didn't make her a star, but it did make her a legend. In 1983, Quiet Riot releases the single that becomes a heavy metal standard. Come on, feel the noise. It was an anthem. It was a huge breakout single, and it broke all barriers. The band becomes an overnight sensation. We are the band parents love to hate and kids love to love. The first heavy metal album to top the Billboard charts ever. Come on, feel the noise. But does the song become a hit in spite of Quiet Riot themselves? Kevin hated Come and Feel the Noise. They just can't stand it. They're like, we don't want to do it. They will do anything to sabotage. By the late 70s, the LA Sunset Strip has changed its image from peace and love to hair metal. The sort of party rock, guitar hero, flashy lead singer, and Van Halen happened to be the one that got big. But the second biggest band that was doing that was Quiet Riot. The band is led by local guitar virtuoso Randy Rhodes and outspoken lead singer Kevin Dubrow. We had a strong following locally in Los Angeles. We we're going to try anything to make it. You know, we were going in and make demos of what the record companies wanted us to sound like, because we were just like, okay, if we can get a foot in the door, then we can call our own shots. But despite their efforts, Quiet Riot is unable to secure a record deal in the US. And after releasing two albums in Japan, Rhodes leaves the group in 1979 for Ozzy Osbourne. It looks to be the end of Quiet Riot, or so they think. The band was really struggling, and along comes this guy, Spencer Proffer. Spencer Proffer is a young record producer who's had past success with Tina Turner's The Acid Queen, and he's looking for a group he can use to record his next hit song. I called everybody I knew in town, and they told me there was a band fronted by a guy named Kevin Dubrow. I went to see them. There was 20 people in the audience, and they were singing songs like Bang Your Head. They were singing songs like Party All Night. And I'm thinking to myself, holy this is exactly what I had in my mind. Spencer Proffer has a really good bargain for the guys in Choir Riot and says, look, I'll give you studio space. If you do a song that I think could be a hit, I'll do three of yours. I'll pay for it. So Kevin said, okay. He said, there's this great Slade song from the 70s that not a lot of people know about called Come On, Feel the Noise. I really think you guys should cover it. The original version had a much more kind of poppy, Brit glam feel. And the band, they hate the song. Outwardly, the band, of course, tells Spencer, we're 100%, we're gonna do this for you because they wanted the studio time. That was kind of like Kevin dangling the carrot in front of Spencer going, okay, if you record these, I will record Come and Feel the Noise. Internally, the guys make a decision and say, yeah, we're not doing this. So Dubrow and drummer Frankie Benali devise a plan to sabotage the recording. 
I hear Frankie telling Kevin, listen, don't worry. I'm gonna play as bad as I can. So Spencer gives up on the idea of recording this song. Coming up, the fallout of Quiet Riot's sabotage. And they're looking at each other like, I thought you were gonna screw it up. No, I, I thought you were gonna screw it up. And Kevin is just furious. And later, Katy Perry finds herself in a divine dispute. A feud like no other. It becomes Katy Perry versus the nuns. In 1982, Kevin Dubrow and Quiet Riot are in the studio recording the album Metal Health. Their producer, Spencer Proffer, has made them a deal that he'll pay for the album if they record a cover of Slade's Come On, Feel the Noise. The band hates the song and hatches a plan to sabotage the recording. They thought if they did it bad enough, that Spencer would be like, uh, yeah, maybe you guys are right. You know, uh, let's, let's just do your own original material. I'm in the control room watching the whole thing, and Kevin is like really excited to see Frankie, you know, destroy the song. And so Frankie's idea of playing bad is keeping it simple. He even started with what he considered to be this kind of really simple drum beat. Then Kevin singing on top of that. Come on, feel the noise. And they tracked the song, one take, and Spencer Prophet goes, Great, we got this. So Spencer thinks, this is what I'm looking for. Spencer's like, we've got a hit on our hands. And Kevin is just furious. <laughs> and they're looking at each other like, I thought you were gonna screw it up. No, I, I thought you were gonna screw it up. Kevin starts yelling at Frankie, and Frankie goes, yeah, I'm sorry, this is the worst that I could play it. Then Frank basically went to him, wait, wait a minute, you're the one who sang it. You, you sang it good. The song is a massive hit. Their album goes to number one on the charts and Quiet Riot become a household name. If it's metal you want, it's metal health you got! Despite their attempts to ruin the song, Dubrow and Quiet Riot can't downplay the impact of Come On, Feel the Noise on the band's legacy. Spencer Proffer was right on. Without Common Field the Noise, the record would have not had the major success that it did. And then it took off, and then people started jumping on that bandwagon. They're laughing all the way to the bank. And it's all just riding the crest of this one song that the band never even wanted to be a thing. Kevin DeBrow, before he passed away, he said, I wasn't a fan of Slade's, but we had a huge hit with it, and that changed the direction of our lives, so. I can't complain too much. It's 2013, and pop superstar Katy Perry is house shopping in LA. One of the biggest, sexiest pop stars on the planet decides she's gonna buy this house and puts down $14.5 million for it. The property sits in one of the most sought after parts of the LA area, 60,000 square feet, and has over 50 bedrooms. For Perry, the $14 million price tag isn't the issue. No, the problem is the home's current residence. Katy Perry is trying to buy a convent. And the nuns 
aren't exactly happy about this. The nuns say this woman is a devil worshiper. This has been a very ugly battle for the ownership of this convent. You have stolen the property of the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart. It becomes Katy Perry versus the nuns. The irony of this whole situation is that of all the pop stars out there, Katie is probably one of the most devoutly Christian ones. It's true. Perry gets her start in the church, and her first album, released in 2001, under the name Katie Hudson, is Christian Rock. grew up in a staunch, Bible-loving household, and the only music she ever sang before she became famous was church music. I'm a pretty bold person when it comes to my faith and don't really care what other people think about me. The idea that now she's sort of seen as living in sin is uh, kind of crazy. Now, 12 years later, Perry tries to convince a group of nuns and the Catholic diocese that she's worthy of buying their convent. They do not want to sell to Katy Perry because Katy Perry was Katy Perry. Her lifestyle and her philosophy is not uh, goes along with what we teach. She tries to gain their support with a private performance of gospel music, but it doesn't work. The nuns continue their effort to block the sale. The legal battle over the sale of a Los Angeles convent is heading to court. Katy Perry said it was going to be her home. God only knows what would happen to it. I am not sure I know of many other moments where nuns were really willing to go to court like this, but they would do anything they could to not sell it to Katie. I just can't sit back and let that happen. Coming up, an unlikely advocate comes to support the pop star. The Pope himself has to bless this deal or it can't go forward. So now, thanks to Katy Perry, the Pope is involved in this spat. In 2013, the Catholic Diocese has a mansion on the market in Los Angeles and Katy Perry has made an offer. But the current residents, a group of nuns, don't endorse Perry or her lifestyle and try to block the sale. It's been Katy Perry aligned with the Archdiocese versus these nuns. And this led to a feud like no other. Things get really crazy. You know that she is one of the most wicked people. She is a satanic woman who has led millions to hell. So then things get even messier. A restaurateur named Dana Hollister enters the fray. In 2015, Hollister offers a solution for the nuns and the diocese. She'll pay them 15.5 million, a million more than Perry. Now there's even more money, it's going to the right person, so all of a sudden to Dana Hollister. But Perry sues Hollister and the nuns for obstructing the sale and aligns herself with a very powerful ally. The Vatican has a rule where any sale above $7 million has to go to the Pope. The Pope himself has to bless this deal or it can't go forward. So now, thanks to Katy Perry, the Pope is involved in this. 
Even though the Pope endorses Perry, the case is still tied up in court when, in 2018, the tension reaches a breaking point. During a legal proceeding, an 89-year-old nun who lives in the property gets up and says, to Katy Perry to please stop. It's not doing anyone any good except hurting a lot of people. And then passes out and dies. Sister Catherine Rose collapsed and died in court today during a hearing involving the ongoing battle to prevent Perry from taking over the property. People were kind of like, Katy Perry pressured an elderly nun so much that she died, and it became a whole thing. It's now been a decade since Perry put a deposit on the house, and to this day, it remains empty. So at the end of this, what happens? Nothing. This is an example of a story that people latched onto it because there was a celebrity name attached, but I don't think Katy Perry is responsible for killing any nuns. So I think we can leave it at that. A country star who senses her tragic end. A band whose self-sabotage leads to greatness. And a pop star's strange lawsuit over a convent. Each are music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.